Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Father, as we take this holy word into our hands now and into our minds, we acknowledge our utter dependence upon you to understand it and to believe it and to live it. Left to ourselves, we will misunderstand it, distort it, reject it, become licentious or legalistic with it. And so I ask for your help, for me, for a very special enabling and anointing. I ask for my listeners that their hearts would be tuned to discern the truth and to detect error. And I pray that their hearts would be so framed now that they would love the truth and embrace it and live it to your glory. I ask, Father, very specifically for unbelievers in our midst that they would sense the love of Christ as their own hearts are opened and laid bare with all of ours. And would you save them through faith in Jesus? And would you build the saints, the sinful saints, all of us who have trusted in Jesus, and make us strong and wean us off the breast of sin, and grant that we would find satisfaction in the bread of life, and the fountain of joy called Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. I focus your attention on verse 18 of what Keith read to us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the last time we were together, a couple of weeks ago, we entered upon this new unit in the book of Romans that ends in chapter 3. And we saw that it is going to be breathtakingly relevant. We're going to see relevance for naturalistic evolution. We're going to see relevance for... Insolent, arrogant, 
disrespectful young people who mock their parents. We're going to see relevance for homosexuality and certain kinds of sexually transmitted diseases. And today, we see an absolutely stunning relevance for spin doctors. Spin doctors are people whose job it is to get their finger into the wind of public opinion, discern which way the wind is blowing, and then craft language so as to be appealing to that direction with little or no regard for the truth. That's what this verse is about. However, there's a huge danger for us at this point here in the volatile situation in which we find ourselves. Namely, the danger of self-righteousness. So drop your eyes down to chapter 2, verse 1. You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment on Washington, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So I do not hesitate to say every single person in this room is a spin doctor by nature. And what I mean by that is we come into the world and are spring-loaded to speak of our failures in the brightest terms and our adversaries' failures in the darkest terms. That's the way we're wired. Everybody in this room is like that. And it can get so bad that not only that, but we can't even see our own sin anymore, but oh, how we can see it in others, which is why chapter 2 exists in this book. So, it would be foolhardy of me this morning to turn this in to a politically oriented message to highlight the folly of what is happening in Washington today. And the reason it would be foolhardy of me is because it would narrow down the focus of this text to a little teeny-weeny event in history and application like what's happening there when in fact this text is about something vastly bigger than what's happening there. It is about human nature. Everybody. This text is a sweeping statement about the way human beings are. And if that weren't enough reason not to turn it into a politically oriented indictment, it would let us off the hook. The Bible does not exist and preaching does not exist to let anybody off the hook. It's designed precisely for the opposite. 
namely to open our eyes to the hook that we're on. That's what it's for. And therefore, this is not a message about Bill Clinton or about any of the persons involved in what's happening in Washington. It is about John Piper and his depravity and his bentness to notice so quickly when I'm let down and be blind to when I let my wife down. That's, that's what this text is about. You and me who are wired, Talitha, two and three quarters year old, testifying day in and day out to the truth of this text. Children are born with an absolute indifference to truth, except insofar as it helps them get their way. A child will distort the truth immediately if it serves their purposes. Nobody's born with an allegiance to truth. We are born with an allegiance to one thing, me. And therefore, this is a massively important text for everybody in this room. And I'm just praying as I preach even, as I have early this morning and for some weeks, that God would grant you to know yourself. Oh, how precious is the gift of self-knowledge. How precious it is. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Just so you'll know that I'm not broadening this text out without warrant. At the end of this unit on sin and wrath, there come these sweeping summary verses in chapter 3, verse 9. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. So you're included there. And me too. Verse 13, let your eyes drop down to verse 13 of chapter 3. Their throat, and that there is just everybody. This is just a general statement. This is what we are without grace in our lives. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving, suppressing the truth, distorting the truth, evading the truth, spinning the truth. So, the issue this morning is about you and me, and the people you work with, and the children that you have, and the relatives that you visit. This is about us. And let me just say something about the remedy before I get into the analysis of how this works in our hearts. If you're sitting there and you're wondering, hmm, that's heavy. Is there any remedy for this? Well, there is a remedy, and it's in verse 17. And we'll end with it, but I want you to see it now so you know it's coming. Once we're done with analyzing verse 18, we will notice at the end that it begins with the word for or because as a ground for why we need the gospel of verses 16 and 17. And the remedy is a gift of righteousness that is not our own. So I'm going to talk about our unrighteousness and how it plays itself out in suppressing the truth. But you need to know there's a remedy for this. And the worse the news sounds about your heart, and I'll tell you, to get to know your heart is a pretty bleak thing. The worse the news sounds about your heart, the more precious verse 17 ought to sound. 
Okay? So we'll be back there in a little bit. But let's go to verse 18 and listen. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So here we are. We're ungodly and we're unrighteous. And we are truth holders, downers, truth suppressors, truth evaders, distorters, spinners. And if we can't evade it, you know what the other tactic is. We've all seen it, seen it in ourselves, seen it in our kids, seen it in church discipline affairs, and seen it in politics. If you can't evade the truth of your own indictment, the next step is blame somebody else. Accuse, deflect. It's called deflecting. And we've all done it. It was done in Genesis 3, right? She made me do it. That's why I ate. The snake made me do it. That's why I ate. It's an old story. Well, there are several questions. Number one, what is the truth being suppressed here? And number two, why does it say that we suppress it in unrighteousness? So those are my two big questions this morning. Let's take the first one. What is the truth being suppressed here? Is there a point to it? Is there a focus? I believe the answer and the focus is given in verses 19 following, so just keep reading. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God... Now, just stop right there. There's the first clue. The truth that is suppressed is a truth about God. Something we know about God we don't don't want in our heads. And so it is suppressed. Keep reading. What can be known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, now he gets specific. Not just a big, vague truth about God, but he mentions a few things. His invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and deity or divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So there is objective truth, and I think this is the truth, fundamentally, that is being suppressed. There's a God, He's eternal, and He's powerful. And He made everything. And therefore we owe Him everything. Which leads us now to the subjective side of the truth in verse 21. For even though they knew this God, they did not. Here are the two things that are beholden to those who know such a God. They did not honor him, that is, glorify him as God or give him thanks. That's the subjective side of truth. The truth is we should live for God's glory. The truth is we should live lives of gratitude. So let's sum it up. What's the truth? The truth is there's a God. He made everything, and therefore nothing is outside of him. There are no competitors. He is the God, not a God. 
He is powerful because he made everything and everything is under him and he's sovereign over it. He's eternal. He had no beginning. He'll have no end. And therefore, he never came into being. There is nothing outside or before him that made him the way he is. And therefore, he is absolute reality. We reckon with him or we perish. And therefore, we exist for his glory. And we exist as beneficiaries of his bounty. And our lives, therefore, the meaning of human life is to display that God through gratitude to Him. That's what we have here. That's the truth that everybody suppresses by nature. It is so radically indicting to the love affair with sin, the love affair with independence, the love affair with self-reliance, that we suppress it. Let's confirm this with a few verses later in the chapter. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God. That's what we've been talking about. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now this exchange is nothing other than suppression. Trade it off for a lie. Embrace the lie. Bury the truth. And then you don't have to reckon with it. And the lie here that is being embraced says they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And the number one creature is me. And that's what we're going to see is the root origin of homosexuality. Because me is always my sex that's a few weeks away look at verse 28 just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer now there's a more literal rendering here we go like this just as they did not see fit to approve having God in their knowledge There's again the suppression. So they have God in their knowledge. They have some inkling of it, some intuition of it, some sense of it. And they don't like it and don't approve of it. And so they suppress it. And therefore God gave them over, it says, to a depraved mind. So we see a suppression. We see an exchange and we see a disapproval and it all means the same thing. God comes into our knowledge and we don't like what we see and we suppress it so that we can be God. Do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. Thank you. Don't tell me how to live my life, how to do my marriage, how to do sex, how to do money, how to do my job. Bug off. I don't even think you exist. Suppress. And that's what everybody's doing. Everywhere. Apart from the marvel of sovereign awakening grace. There's a blindness that happens when you do this. You can't even see truth anymore sometimes. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Give thanks to him. Verse 21. But they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were, this awful word, darkened. Oh, God, have mercy upon our darkness. 
In other words, part of our condition is that we suppress the truth in such a way that it's subconscious. We don't even know we're doing it. We're blind. We're in the dark. So sum it up. The answer to this first question, what is the truth we're suppressing? God exists. God is eternal. No beginning, no ending. God is infinitely powerful over all other powers. God supplies us with everything. Therefore, our response to truth and the truth that is to be in us is to live for his glory. And the way mentioned here that we do that is gratitude. That is a life of continual exaltation. If you know anybody, including the person in the mirror who does not live a moment-by-moment life of exaltation in the beneficence of God, you know a spin doctor and a suppressor of the truth. And that's everybody on planet Earth. Now, before I pass on to question number two, there are a couple of implications to draw out of this. We at Bethlehem love some things about God and have an angle on God that is very precious. One of the things we like to say at Bethlehem, and I want to draw it out of this text so that you hear it again and again, is God is glorious and exists to magnify His glory on the earth. His great passion in the universe is to be known for who He is, exalted for who He is, loved and cherished and hoped in and treasured for who He is and thus displayed for all His great glory. And every human being wants to be satisfied, wants to be happy, wants to be joyful, wants to make it through judgment and live eternally in some blissful way. And these two great passions in the universe, we believe, are one. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Now, that's right there in verse 21. I want you to see it. Even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give Him thanks. Now, just think about those two words. There are two great human duties. One is to so live that God be displayed as glorious. And the other is to so taste the beneficence of God coming to us, giving himself to us, surrounding us with good things that we exult continually in thankfulness. And the second one is the way you do the first one. Because Psalm 50 verse 23 says, He who brings to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Glorifies me. Now, isn't that just another way of saying God's passion to be glorified and my passion to be satisfied are not at odds? I'm getting the benefits, He's getting the glory. This is the best of all worlds under those conditions. And we suppress it. We do not want to be beholden to God for everything. We do not want to be dependent upon Him. 
for everything. And therefore, we don't want to give him glory by being welfare recipients who only receive, 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 and can't ever meet any of his needs by our resources. Now, there's another thing that I need to clarify here. Um, I've made a big deal in one of my books about gratitude not being the key to the Christian life. Rather, faith being the key to the Christian life. So, those of you who are sort of tracking with the Bethlehem mindset should be listening to me right now saying, whoa, this sounds like a mega tribute to gratitude in this text. So, what are you going to say to this? How does this fit? If life is to be lived by faith in future grace, and gratitude is not the key to living the Christian life, what's this text about? Why is gratitude... Why does it say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in ungodliness and then go on to say that what can be known about God is revealed and that those who know it do not glorify Him and trust Him. Why doesn't it say trust? Seems like your theology would say trust should be there, not thank. Now there's a reason for this. At least I think this is the reason that Paul wrote it this way. This text is about natural revelation. That is, what is revealed about God through nature. It is not about special revelation and what is revealed about God through the Bible. In special revelation, as God begins to come to an Abraham and make him promises, come through prophets in the Old Testament and make them promises, come through Jesus Christ who is the yes and amen to all the promises of God, as he comes and gives us a Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not, will, will, will he not future give us all things with him? When special revelation like that lands on us, it is thoroughgoing promises. And the right response to promises is not gratitude, but faith. And the power to live a distinctively Christian life is not just to believe that the sun is shining today, but that in 10 million years the sun will shine upon your life, saved by grace. And if you don't have that confidence, you can't live the Christian life. You can't get promises from the rising sun. It may not rise tomorrow. But you can get promises from the gospel. And therefore, when special revelation through the Bible in the gospel comes to us with manifold covenant promises about the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God to work for those who wait for Him, something awesome happens in our hearts in addition to gratitude. Oh, believe me, this text stands... Gratitude is essential for all that God has ever done to us. And the sea of grace filling up from the river that 
tumbles over the slice of the present into the past is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger every day so that as you stand on the cliffs between the present and the future and let your eyes glance back on the sea of grace say thank you (laughs) to put it mildly Sing, dance for gratitude to what God has done for you and is doing today. The sun is shining on this wicked city. But as you turn from that sea of past grace into an uncertain future with your life, and you face the crises that some, like Tom Lane there, has faced with his wife's injury. You face that kind of thing. The rising sun doesn't... <laughs> what, is it, what help is that? Will this turn out? And then you go to the promises and faith. Faith embraces promises. So that's my answer to the question why it says gratitude here in this natural revelation context rather than faith. Now, one last question. Why does it say that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Why doesn't it say we suppress the truth in ungodliness? You see, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then, when he talks about the suppression of the truth, he picks the second one, not the first one, to say we suppress it in this one. Why? The reason is that the truth being suppressed is godliness. The truth is godwardness. Godness. There's a God. I'm to live for His glory. I'm to thank Him continually. That's godliness. That's the vertical thing called godliness. And that's what we don't like. And we suppress that. And He's answering a very profound question. Why? Why do human beings do that? Why do they distort it, evade it, suppress it, spin it, twist it, run from it? Why? And He says, it's all about their unrighteousness now unrighteousness here I believe is the life orientation of those who love sin love wrong love not the right it's unrighteousness and it's our love affair with the wrong that causes us to suppress the truth about the right. I want to take two texts and then we'll wind it up to show you how this works. And if you want to go there with me, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll take one from Paul and one from Jesus. The one from Paul is 2 Thessalonians 2. He's talking about the end times and the coming of the lawless one and the great apostasy and the Antichrist. And he's describing what's going to happen in the human heart and what is now happening in the human heart. 
And the analysis of the human heart is profound in these verses. Let's look at it. Verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 2. This lawless one is going to come with all the deception of unrighteousness. Now take that phrase. Deception of unrighteousness. That means unrighteousness deceives. A love affair and a commitment to what is not right leads us to suppress the truth and be deceived. Keep reading. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Why? Why do they love righteousness, I mean unrighteousness, and not the truth? What, what's going on here? Verse 11. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but... Now here this but is the is the analysis that goes to the root. They did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you see the relationship between truth and unrighteousness here? This is identical to the analysis in 118 of Romans. Truth offers itself from the sky or in the gospel or in our consciences. We see it, we reject it. Why? We suppress it. Why? We distort it. Why? We take half of it and keep the half we like and reject the half we don't like. Why? Because our heart is in love with unrighteousness. We love ourselves, we love sin, we love independence, we love self-determination, we love so many things that the truth sheds light on as dark that we don't want the light in our lives. We'll turn off the radio, we'll stop reading the Bible, we won't come to church, we won't listen to friends, we won't go to that camp, we won't talk with those people, anything, because they're always bringing light on the things that are dark in our lives and that we love. Now before I give you the last text to look at, I want to I state a principle here that is so important. Listen, all you sages and becoming sages, this message is designed to help you know yourself and people. And here's a, here's a principle. The issue of truth is an issue of the heart before it is an issue of the head. Have you seen that now in what I've read? The issue of whether you are a truth-exalting person is first an issue of the loves of the heart before it is an issue of the rational ideas of the head. And that's scary. Because we like to think that if I can just use my head real carefully, I can get everything right. And the answer to that is, 
your head is a lackey in the service of the passions of your heart. We think we're rational, folks. We think we use our heads very coolly and objectively to assess all the evidence about who we are and where we're going. We're not cool. We are burning with desire that it not say a certain thing. And we take charge of our minds subconsciously and make those minds serve our desires. Oh, just let my wife catch me in an inconsistency. Just let my wife find some little thing in my life and draw attention to it. I tell you, this brain got all its education. Whoa, what it can do to get out of that is phenomenal. Our brains are slaves to our passions. And therefore, the only answer is God changing our hearts. You must be born again or you can't see the kingdom of heaven. That's desperate, folks. And until you come to that desperate condition and say, if he's right, I'm really desperate. Because there are so many people who have self-made religions who think, okay, I think this, I think this, I think this, I think, and now I draw this conclusion, and therefore this is true, and therefore, and I'm in control of this thing, never knowing this thing is a desire factory. This heart is a desire factory that is so massive in its power that we will constantly twist and distort and adjust and evade and spin the truth to make it fit exactly what we want. I see it in the mirror enough to know it and speak with forcefulness about it. And it scares me to death. Last verse. If you want to look at it with me, John chapter 3. I want you to see Jesus, Jesus himself saying these things before we close. Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 3, verse 19. Listen to these words. Oh, how good it is to see words spoken in different language about a truth that we've seen elsewhere in the Scripture. Jesus said, this is the judgment that light, you could say truth, has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Could he not have just as easily said, because of unrighteousness? Unrighteousness suppresses truth. Unrighteousness inclines us to love the darkness and hate the light. It's because we have a love affair with things in our lives that are wrong, that make us distort the truth and put the blame on other people and evade and spin. Look at verse 20. says it again. Everyone who does evil hates the light. So every inkling of desire that is wrong in your heart will incline you away from the light. 
And most of us religious types don't run from the light. We distort the light. We don't stop coming to church. We just redefine it. Let's keep reading. Everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light, for fear that our deeds will be exposed. Commitment to truth will never happen until a profound heart work by which we fall out of love with evil happens. You must be born again. Well, I suppose the last thing to say would be God is very angry at this. Verse 18, back here. He is very angry at the suppression of his truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Thank God for what's happening in Washington today. And pray this way. Oh God, this is a stunning work of gracious providence for this land. It is an absolutely amazing gift of God to this land. That the parable of my heart should be played out like that. Receive this as a gift, folks. Let your children hear this as a gift. Behold what happens when truth is forsaken. When truth is spun, when truth is evaded, when truth is run from, when we say, like a little child caught with his hand in the cookie jar, define cookie. Is it relations or is it affair or is it... Be thankful for what God is displaying for you. Embrace it. Confess your sins. Teach your children how not to hate the truth. There's a bondage in the human heart. President's hearts, preacher's hearts, human hearts everywhere. That if we don't get free by sovereign grace, every one of us will be a spin doctor. Be thankful. And go to school. Go to school. On Washington. It is a parable of the human condition. And I said I would close with the gospel. So let me remind you of verse 17. All you who sit there feeling, if you only knew the deception in my life. God knows the deceptions in your life. How many times you've told a half truth at work, half truth to your spouse, half truth to a roommate half-truth to your parents, just, just weaseling. The answer to that is justification by faith alone. Because you're never going to get totally beyond it. You're going to lie in a hospital bed someday, facing your end. And when the pastor comes and says, how are you doing? You're going to twist it. Because you don't want to say how scared you are. 
don't be that way. Don't be that way. And, and what frees you from being that way is a gift. An absolutely free gift of righteousness that is God's, not yours, on the grounds of which he will take you home clean because Jesus bore it all. So receive that. Would you receive that? Would you live on that? Would you let that be your life? And as you live on that, God will make you a truth person. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You're dismissed.